This is Nightlife with Suzanne Hill. But here's CJ Johnson back to talk movies with us. Hi, CJ. Good evening. Happy Mardi Gras, Suzanne. Happy Mardi Gras to you. It's such a beautiful night in Sydney and it just makes me so proud of this city when I see this happening. It's just fantastic, isn't it? It is. Always makes me cheer up a bit, actually, when I watch it. Uh, Now, CJ, in honour of Mardi Gras, we're going to have a look at queer cinema. And I know you really think that in the past couple of years, it's gone absolutely gangbusters. But we we might start with some more recent history. How long has queer cinema been around? Well, it's interesting because it's been around since almost the beginning, but it depends where you're looking at. So if you look at Hollywood, if you look at America, queer cinema just didn't exist until the late 1960s, basically, because there was a production code initiated in Hollywood, self-regulated production code by the Hollywood studios from 1934 till about 1962. And within that production code, they all agreed to not really depict homosexuality on screen. So if you were to watch an American movie from 1934 to 1962, you would kind of believe that didn't exist. What about the movie? Movies pre-1934. Oh, yeah. No, that was fine. Oh, right. Yeah, and and yeah. they were made? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There was um, there was depictions of homosexuality. Generally, if you were going to see actual sexuality on screen in those days, it was much more likely to be uh, female on female uh, sexuality rather than male on male. And that actually seems to keep being the norm. There's always more depictions, I would suggest, generally, in in the more mainstream uh, portrayal of queerness uh, with among women rather than among men. And um, I don't know what that says, but that that seems to be a thing, especially when we get closer to the to the current age, which we'll talk about. But in other countries, for example, in Germany, there was a famous film from 1931 called Madchen in Uniform, which is a, a blatant, very strong, straightforward lesbian love story set in a high school. Uh, France has produced a lot of queer cinema over the decades, but going back to the 30s and 40s. So it, it's been around, but it, um, I suppose it, it, it kind of disappeared when the world got a lot more conservative after World War II. There wasn't a lot going on in the 50s. And then when we did get depictions of homosexuality in the 50s, because the Western world at least was in such a conservative period, it tended to be problematic and moralistic tales. So rather than love stories, you were getting stories of self-hatred and stories of unacceptance, stories of... Lives gone wrong and Lives gone wrong, closeted that. people yeah. who who felt bad about themselves, suicide, that kind of stuff. Mm. And um, so then it's not really until the late, 80s and early 90s that we get a burst through of the modern era. So why did it take so long though, CJ? If we stopped having that moral code in Hollywood in what, 1962, you were saying it's what you're looking at a sort of 20, 25 year lag. Because of the markets, you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Because like any, you know, to make a movie to make money, you've got to try and appeal to a larger percentage of the audience than whatever, 10%. And I guess in common thinking, you know, the queer market in any Western country, for example, is about 10%. And so therefore you've got to figure that that's one-tenth of your potential profit base. And so the the profit, uh, the, the people who are in the business of making movies for profit, i.e. the Hollywood studios, were simply not interested. You know, until they can see a 
their profit margin, they're just not going to make the product. And so they are they are the latest to enter the game. You know, it's only in the last couple of years that we've got Hollywood studio movies, you know, that cost $30 million that are, that are going for the market because they've only started to see that potential profit because they've only started to see straight people go to films that tell gay stories. Mm. Um, for the longest time, it was assumed that the only people who would go see queer stories would be members of the queer community. So, but you certainly got bolder directors either working independently or outside the Hollywood system or in other countries who were willing to absolutely tell queer stories in the 60s and certainly in the 1970s. In fact, one of the most interesting examples, because it's so bold and it is a Hollywood studio film, is Midnight Cowboy from 1969. So that was made by the director John Schlesinger, who was a British gay man and who was out in his personal life, very, very Mm -hmm. much so, in 1969. And so he made this film with Hollywood money starring two big stars, John Voight and Dustin Hoffman. And the film is essentially a queer film and it does tell the story of two men who find each other in New York City. Now, it never makes explicit that their relationship crosses over into a sexual one, but when you know that John Schlesinger is gay, the mm-hmm. whole film makes sense as a queer film. It mm. absolutely makes sense. And the moment you know that the director is gay, the whole thing just reads easily, <laughs> you know, and plainly. And it won Best uh, Film at the Oscars that year. It was also the first X-rated film, I think the first and only X-rated film to ever win Best Film at the Oscars. Wow. So you do actually have examples of it, but they are they are few and far between. Mm. And it's a troubling film. It's not an easy film. It's not Love, Simon. Now, if you've got a queer film that you would like to talk about, uh, I'd love you to be part of our conversation with CJ. As always, one three hundred eight hundred triple two, or our SMS is zero four six seven nine double two seven zero two. If you're part of the queer community, I wonder if perhaps there was a, a film that you first saw where you went, "Yeah, there's my story being being told on film." Yeah, be part of it. One three hundred eight hundred triple two. So let's talk about some of these um, these films. CJ, Desert Hearts from nineteen eighty four is one you want to talk about. This was one of the real forerunners of everything because it was nineteen eighty four. So this was ahead of the pack because we really don't uh, get into a sort of a new burst of queer cinema until the early nineties. But this one comes out in nineteen eighty four. It's a total outlier, and it's just a charming, lovely lesbian love story set in, I believe, Nevada in, you know, out in the desert states in the United States by a lesbian woman, director, writer, director. And um, it made a splash because among, it was part of a very small group of independent films that occurred in the 1980s and actually particularly in 1984. That's the same year that the Coen brothers made their first film, Blood Simple, for like next to no money, completely independently, just with money raised from their friends who were dentists and stuff like that. And um Desert Hearts made it. It's just its gentle little splash and potentially opened some doors for other people to come. But like all of these early films, these were passion projects. These were directors who got friends to be their producers and they just worked their friends and, as I say, you know, contacted local business owners in their community saying, you know, can you put a few thousand dollars into my film? You know, they, they really blood, sweat and tears to make these films because they, they had stories to tell. You know, these were not profitable adventures and they were so far out of Hollywood that they might have been made, might as well have been made in Tonga. <laughs> I 
And CJ, do you know what these films tended to also feature uh, queer actors? That is a really good question. I do not know the answer to that about Desert Hearts in particular, but that is a super question because that's always been an interesting question that swirls around queer cinema. Mm. It almost goes without saying, not completely, but it almost goes without saying that queer films are made by queer directors. That tends to be the case, right? I mean, because they're the ones who've got a story to tell and that's the story they're telling. Mm. But the casting of queer actors within those queer roles is a really interesting one because even now, even recently, in very recent history, like in the last 18 months, there have been major queer films released starring straight actors in queer roles. So it hasn't yet become taboo to not to to do that, pardon me. You know, like it's been. Mm. You know, the, like there was recently there was um, a kerfuffle. There was controversy about Helen Mirren playing Golda Meir in the film Golda because Helen Mirren is herself not Jewish. So you know, there's there's this taboo about cultural assimilation, or can you play you know roles outside of your ethnicity or mm. quote unquote race, etc. And but within sexuality, it seems like they're still casting you know straight people to play gay people. And I think any minute now that door is going to close. Mm, I would imagine so too. Now, you'll never guess who's on the line, CJ. Uh, no, uh, can I guess? <laughs> <laughs> Who likes to ring us on a Saturday night to talk movies? Oh, from... It's Ryan from, Ryan Ballarat. from Ballarat. Hey, Ryan. Oh, my God, Suzanne, CJ, my heart is filled with warmth and love and cinema. Oh, my God, rejoice. Thank you so much for taking my call. Now, before I give my favourite queer, like, quote-unquote movie... I want to mention one word and I want to see what it sparks in CJ. And that word is crash. Crash? Oh, well, that is a very queer movie if you're referring to David Cronenberg's crash. No, no, well, actually, really, but no, but it it broke back mountain that year was, oh, my God, the best film. Yeah, Yeah. crash. Oh, that crash. won the Oscar, yeah. Yeah, well, that, that was appalling. I remember I was sitting watching the Oscars that year. So this is not David Cronenberg's crash. This is the crash that's all about intersecting lives in Los Angeles and it's all about race relations in Los Angeles. And it famously won the best Doctor or infamously won the best picture Oscar the same year as Brokeback Mountain so I was watching I was uh, had a few friends over to watch the Oscars that night and I was convinced Brokeback Mountain was going to win because it was easily the best film of the year Um, and uh, I was sitting with a friend of mine who's a film editor guy named Andrew McNeil and he said no it's not going to win Crash is going to win because and I said you're crazy why and he said because the Academy is not going to vote for that gay film they're just not ready and he was right and I was wrong Yeah, I don't think that would be the case now, but still in whatever year it was, um, that was still the case. Goodness me. All right, Ryan, what are your other film suggestions? uh, My my film, uh, it won the Palm d'Or, and uh, when I watched it, I was so, like, up and about. I I got on Twitter and said, Rob Quinn, this is the greatest coming-of-age film I've ever seen. It's called Blue is the Warmest Colour. Ooh, yes. French. And it, it just goes beyond queer, like, like beyond the queerness to to socioeconomic class, the, the, the class system in France, everything. Just, just it breaks down so many barriers. Not that there could be more of a barrier to, to, to break down than like uh, homosexuality and, and queerness and, and like 
uh, the LGBTI and everything they got everything someone in that lifestyle must endure, but it did break through it. And for that, wow! Like Steven Spielberg, Spielberg, I think gave out the award that year. Colossal film. Yeah, and it gave us two of the great actresses who continue to work in the French film industry and globally in Leah Seydoux and. Adele Exacopoulos, I'm not sure I pronounced her last name right, but that film is mired in an interesting controversy as well um, because it was directed by a straight man and it, as you know, has multiple scenes of intense lesbian lovemaking and so it has been accused post-facto of, you know, male-gazing the queer act of lovemaking and that that is something that is actually worth discussing as well in the same way, you know, should straight actors play gay roles? Should straight people make queer cinema? <laughs> I, I, I turned it off when the lovemaking was happening, of course, mate. I, I wouldn't watch a thing like that, you know. I'm an upstanding gentleman. <laughs> that so. film must have been about 18 minutes then for you. <laughs> <laughs> I love you guys. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks Ryan. Always good to have Ryan uh, along. Oh, yeah. Nice, reliable call out. Dion in Adelaide. Hello. Uh, hi, guys. How are you tonight? Hi. Extremely well. Happy Mardi yeah. Gras. What's the film you want to talk about, Dion? I really, really love Law of Desire by Pedro Almodovar. Oh, yeah. That's the, a good film. From, yeah, from his, from from the late 80s. Um, yeah, that is. Got, go on. Mm, oh, yeah. It's, it's got it's got a very young Antonio Banderas and and um, it's and a lot of Almodovar's, you know, sort of stock actors that he used in that period and just a great tale of... Um, you know, well, as the title suggests, desire and obsession, and and um, Simon Callow actually wrote that he thought uh, for a long time it was the only gay film that had really, like, been made that, that he thought showed, um, like, the you know the the depths of gay experience that it's, it's about gay men that they can go through in a way unlike other films that had that had been made, and not not being very articulate about it, but it, but it's a it's a great movie, and. Um, you know, it, I it, think um, it yeah. sure, it sure <laughs> is, and and so um, the Ritz Cinema at in Randwick here in Sydney last year, I think, or maybe the year before, um, showed all of Amaldivar's films in order on Friday wow. nights at seven o'clock. So I went to as many of them as I could. And what struck me was in his first, I mean, he's made 24 films or something, but in the, yeah. that first batch of 10, um, you know, he makes a few sort of real low budget ones and then he gets his, his run up and his steam up and he's really rollicking along. And he makes this, this batch of very queer films the, mm. the, and about three or four in the row of them star Antonio Banderas as a queer man. And Antonio Banderas has since married a woman and produced children. And Melanie I don't Griffith, know. Yes. Yeah, but maybe, yeah. I don't know to what degree he may have been queer or not as a young man, but he certainly is in, incredibly convincing in those roles and very bold. I mean, those films verge on the explicit at times. You know, they're very sexual and and frank in their sexuality. And Pedro Maldivar, you know, has been pumping out queer cinema since the very beginning. I mean, really queer cinema. <laughs> You know what? You're, you're, you've you've actually helped me remember, and thank you so much. There was one called um, Labyrinth of Passion. Yes, I think it was our second movie, and and he and he plays a young uh, queer man in that as well. I've yes. forgotten that. Yes, yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're right. yeah, yeah. He's in a bunch of them, and and very often he also played. Sometimes um, he also played quite deranged people, like in Tie Me Up, Tie Me Down. So yeah, yeah. All right, and, hey, and, Dion. And, 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 yeah, yeah. Thanks so much. Oh, sorry. I know oh, you got one more. Oh, yeah. oh, well, I think the other film I wanted to bring up was um, 
Mulholland Drive, and as an example of what <laughs> CJ was uh, astutely um, saying, that you're more likely to see, uh, you know, two women being sexual in a in a contemporary Hollywood film than than two men, because that that film is in, intensely, has got you know intensely queer love scenes between. Um, Naomi Watts and uh, I've forgotten the name of the, of the other actress. Everyone does. I think it's like Laura <laughs> Herring or something. But yeah, those. That, yeah, I don't know, Jane Herring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those scenes were, you know, amazing. And that you're right. That was a very, that was a very explicit um, queer film under once again the the direction of a very straight man. <laughs> yes. Hey, all right, Dion. Thank you. Great to have you uh, with us tonight on Nightlife. I've got CJ Johnson here in the studio as it's Mardi Gras night, uh, and we are celebrating. We're going to cross back to the parade before too long. We're talking queer cinema. If you have a favourite film in that genre you'd like to talk to us about, one three hundred eight hundred triple two or the SMS zero four six seven nine double two seven zero two. We've got a couple more people on the line. I might just get through a couple on the list though. Um, Poison uh, from nineteen ninety one. Yeah, Poison's a really seminal film in uh, queer cinema because it's by Todd Haynes. So Todd Haynes' most recent film, May December, is currently currently in cinemas and it is my favorite film that was produced in 2023 it's it's astonishingly good it stars Natalie Portman and uh, Julie Ann Moore and a guy named Charles Melton and it's fantastic and even though it is not it does not deal with queer themes. Todd Haynes is 100% a queer filmmaker and he's a gay man and a, and a queer filmmaker and his films have a queer sensibility and May December does. But Poison, right off the bat, was was a very queer film. It's, it's, it's a triptych of three stories and they're all sort of told in the style of older classical Hollywood f- cinema. So one of the stories is told as a horror film and it's about a... Um, a, a, a thing in a jar in in a laboratory that gets out of hand, and it's essentially a, a, a parody a parody parable of the AIDS virus. And a lot of these early films in early queer new cinema in the nineties are addressing AIDS head on. And uh, that's what he did. And that's the film that um, launched him onto the world stage. And he's gone on to make some of the classics of the genre, such as Carol, which is a, a fantastic oh, queer with film Kate, Kate with Kate Blanchett and Rooney Mara. Rooney Mara, pardon me. Mm. Um, and uh, Edward II. Yeah, Edward II is a film by Derek Jarman. So Derek Jarman was one of the quintessential independent English gay filmmakers of the early 90s. He made a bunch of extremely independent, extremely queer films. Once again, he was a gay man making predominantly gay male queer films. And Edward II was his take on the story of King Edward II, who, by all accounts, was queer and had a male lover. And um, his relationship with his wife, who was played by Tilda Swinton. And Tilda Swinton has become, I would suggest, since then, over the intervening three decades, one of the quintessential straight women playing in queer yes. films. And she often gravitates to queer filmmakers. Yeah. Uh, now I've got Lizzie from Tambourine who's given us a call. Hello, Lizzie. Evening, everyone. Evening. Evening. Happy Mardi Gras. Yes, happy Mardi Gras to you too. What's the film you want to talk about, Lizzie? Okay, so there's two that stood out to me as a teen growing up in the late 90s, early noughties. And this was from someone who didn't really know anyone from the Alphabet Mafia, as my students like to call themselves now. Um, (laughs) But um, at the time, it wasn't something that was really discussed at home or anything like that. And the two films that stood out for me the most during that time were Looking for Alla Brandy and Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. 
So we'll certainly get on to Priscilla in a second because obviously that it really is one of the seminal <laughs> queer films of all time and it's proudly, proudly Australian and so Australian. But I, I forgive me, I've only seen Looking for Alibrandi once and that was when it was in the cinemas. So I've barely got a memory of it, but I certainly don't remember any queer content. Was that a, a queer film? Uh, so it wasn't the main theme, mm-hmm. but it was a side story of a character that the um, Alibrandi daughter was very interested in and he ended up suiciding because of people's belief of him being of the um, LGBTQ plus community. Oh, and how was that dealt with? There was to be the straight drama. Um, It's, well, because it was a film that was being targeted at school and schools that were studying the book so they could watch the film as well, um, it, in the book, it is much better handled. The film glossed over it a tiny bit, but it made me go back to the book that I'd read ages ago and devour it again and again and again. And it spoke more of a hiding the reason why that person suicide, because the book was based very early 90s, um, but also that people shouldn't be treated differently just because of who they are and what they are fundamentally deep down in their bones and they're in the very matrix of their being. Right. And it, it, it brought to me a, hang on, this is normal. There is nothing wrong with this. This was from late early late 90s, early noughties now, something I hadn't touched on, but it opened up a whole new field for me to go and explore and become interested in and discover who I was in my own personal matrix and that, you know, we are all part of the same community. We are all people who need to look after each other. It doesn't matter who we love, what we love. We are all here to yeah. support each other, look after each other. Yeah, Lisa, that was a big yeah. shock for me at that time. Wow, that's fantastic. Yeah, that it's films. great to hear that it had such a yeah. you know it played such an important role for you, Lizzie. Uh, now, CJ, we should uh, thank you for your call, Lizzie. Let's talk about Priscilla, and then we'll cross to the parade. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Priscilla is is certainly one of the most important queer films ever mm-hmm. made because it's it's front and center. You know, from yeah. the opening scene, that film announces exactly what it is. Yeah. yeah, and who who's in it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> in a frock on a rock. Exactly. And I think I think there were two global impacts that that film had. For a start, and I know anecdotally because I've got friends all over the world and I know that that film taught a lot of the world about drag, about the art of drag. Like there were people all over the world who just did not know of the existence of the art form known as drag. And this film was like, look at this. <laughs> and, you know, that's that's astonishing on its own because when you think about the relationship of drag to queerness, it, it's a fundamental thing. It's important. It's important to all aspects of, of the queer community. But then you've just got this there's no other way you can say it that that film changed people's minds globally about the very nature of homosexuality of queerness it just it humanized for Mm. people who did not get it you know people in communities with lack of education or you know ignorant of progressive values who just did not get it that film was was a turning point because you could get into that film as fun as fun and you could enjoy the characters exactly What do you think? When do we have to return it to the school? We don't. We own it. What? Well, I met some nice Swedish tourists called Lars, Lars and Lars, and I coaxed it out of them for 10,000 bucks. We can't afford it. Well, that's right. Mummy, maybe a trip to the Outback could help me get over this little phase I'm going through. 
And you never know, I might meet some lovely country girl. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, That's from Priscilla Queen of the Desert. CJ Johnson is here. We're talking queer cinema in honour of Sydney's gay and lesbian Mardi Gras, which is being held tonight. And we will go back to Oxford Street right now with the ABC's Lisa Pellegrino, who has been down there for us this evening. Hello again, Lisa. Uh, You're talking about queer cinema. Let's talk about queer TV, the very last float for the Sydney Gay and Lesbian Mardi Gras for 2024 was a homage to a woman of the silver screen, but I guess it was her line in TV, these gays are trying to kill me, that made her so famous (laughs) and beloved by the queer community. I'm joined by Kaylee, Alex and Misty. What's your float? We are DIY Rainbow, and this year we are the Jennifer Coolidge Fan Club. You are all dressed up as Jennifer Coolidge and White Lotus. Yes, of course we are. Um, It was the best costume choice. It's the best person to um, recognise for our float this year, and we were uh, honoured to be dressed in, uh, in homage to her. Why is Jennifer Coolidge so loved by the queer community? Uh, she's just such an incredible person and has been uh, holding a torch for fabulous people for a very long time. What's it like, Misty, to march in the parade? For somebody who's never done it before, what's it like to march? Oh, it was absolutely incredible. Like, the vibe was amazing. It was so fun that everyone, like, so excited. Yeah, I'm so glad I did it. What's on the agenda now? What's happening? Uh, we are going to continue with the party. We're going to uh, hang out with our friends and, um, yeah, just uh, see where the party's headed. Best part about Mardi Gras, what do you love the most? Um, the energy and the atmosphere and the costumes. Will you be back next year? Oh, yeah, I hope so. <laughs> Happy Mardi Gras. Go catch up with your friends. I've stolen you from your float. Uh, now we have the volunteers marching through. They have put on so much. They've really come together. This event is huge. I, I don't even think the words exist to describe how big this event is. So not only is it the paid employees uh, that make Mardi Gras happen, but so many volunteers as well. And now we have the general crowd walking. It's coming to an end. The official parade is finishing and everybody has now descended from the sidelines into the middle. The crowd are now all walking down Oxford Street. They are owning it. Are you joining them, Lisa? Are Are you getting part into it as well? Yes, I'm actually performing at the official after party at 1am, would you believe? (laughs) Well, I'm also a drag king, so some people might have heard of a drag queen. I do drag king, which is a boy version, and I have this character called Donnie Piccolo, which is a homage to my father and the other Italian stallions in my life. And um, I'll be performing with a bunch of other drag kings and different performers tonight at the official after party in Moore Park. So um, 1am primetime slot. Well, Lisa, we will let you finish your work at the parade and get ready for your Drag King Act. Sounds absolutely fabulous. Thank you so much for uh, joining us throughout the evening to tell us, uh, oh, give us some of the sense of colour and excitement from the Mardi Gras parade. Oh, listen, and it has not finished. As I said, now all the crowd are moving from the sidelines down and they're ready for their next adventure. If you missed it, look at the socials, check the broadcast that we did on the television as well. Uh, really enjoy it. And if you can, come next year. 
Lisa Pellegrino, thank you so much. And I, I get the feeling we'll have a few probably quite happy people phoning the pop quiz on their way home from various celebrations uh, a little later this evening. You are on Nightlife on ABC Radio. CJ Johnson is here. We're talking queer cinema. And it was funny, CJ, I've just been looking up at the coverage of the parade on the uh, the TV and the ABC was flashing up an ad for various movies that are going to be on or that you can see on iView. I saw Holding the Man, I saw Looking for Alibrandi, and then I saw Carol, all of which are on our list for tonight. That's funny, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Hey, I've got I've got a cinematic reason why Jennifer Coolidge might be a gay icon, and there Go might on. have been a, a Jennifer Coolidge float. It might have all started with Christopher Guest's film Best in Show. Best in Show was one of the Christopher Guest mockumentaries about dog lovers and going to the dog show, and Jennifer Coolidge played this this woman who was married to a very wealthy, very 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 old man, and she was and she had a little dog and. Um, she got a dog trainer played by Jane Lynch and two-thirds of the way through movie it's revealed that those two are having a big, 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 big gay queer affair and Jane Lynch has gone on to come out and, and be an out actress and although Jennifer Coolidge I don't think is gay herself, that relationship in that film became kind of seminal as a, le- as a fun, great, positive portrayal of a lesbian couple. And so White Lotus has just cemented the legend. I guess so. Yeah. I guess so. And also I think just by the nature of who she is and 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 how she comes across, what she looks like, quite frankly, she's she's a drag queen's love to do her. You know what I mean? <laughs> she's got a lot of features that can yeah. be done in drag. Yeah. Now I think we've, we've uh, well, we've, time is getting away, so we might move to modern cinema in a moment. But I do just want to go through some of our uh, our SMSs. Uh, Mitten says, "How about Call Me by Your Name? A beautiful film with astonishing performance by Timothy Chalamet." And I know this is on your list. Oh yeah, I mean it's amazing. It's such a fabulous film. And this was only a few years ago, really. And it was right there. It was nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars. I mean, this was a film that really crossed over. I mean, it didn't make, you know, $500 million worldwide. It wasn't like that kind of a blockbuster. But it was a film that edged out of the um, the art house into definitely mainstream cultural conversation. And it was a film that straight people were happily going to see, knowing full well that it was a gay love story with sexual content. And that is, I think, the thing that Hollywood in particular has been most afraid of. They've been Mm. most afraid of queer films that include sexual content because they, they, they think that straight audiences will not go see such film. Now this, once again, this applies much more to gay male content mm. like blue is the warmest color you know big hit all over the world and and um and because i think there's some kind of i don't know other people can talk about why men might be interested in go seeing gay female stories with explicit sex but they feel that men and to some degree women aren't necessarily interested in go seeing films with explicit gay sex. I don't know why but maybe. But Call Me By Your Name crossed over that boundary and it was a hit in what they call all quadrants. You know, straight couples would go see Call Me By Your Name and and cry, you know, Mm. and get moved by it. So it was a real, it was to some degree or not, it was a real game changer. Mm. Now, someone says Lonesome, an excellent Aussie movie telling a young man's gay story, which came out last year, produced by Ulysses Oliver. Yeah, and directed and written by a guy named Craig Borum. It's, that's an out there film. It is 
unbelievably explicit. Like if we're talking about the actual portrayal of sexuality on screen, this has some of the most, some of the most realistic looking, <laughs> uh, sexual activity you've ever seen in your life. And it's, it's done really well, actually. It's had a lot of legs. It's been released in sort of a lot of countries all over the world. I know it's been released in America and Britain and, um, certain countries in Asia and, um, it's done really quite well. It's, it's a very earnest film. It's very authentic, very, uh, real. It, I think it's written and directed from real experience and uh, a real understanding of the the community, especially within Sydney. So it's sort of very localised but also quite universal. And um, because of its sexual content, will be challenging to some audiences. Mm. Uh, now, Alan says God's Own Country with Josh O'Connor from 2017 is a great movie. I don't recommend seeing it with a strictly straight friend as there's a lot of rolling around naked in the muddy countryside in Yorkshire. Seems yeah, I haven't seen that one. I remember when that one came out and it was part of a, a new rush of movement, I suppose, where, where quite a lot of films were coming out. And that one, I think, was a kind of a mid-level, in terms of budget, British film. And what you do have in countries like Australia and Britain and France, which have a lot of government subsidy of mm. films, like in those countries, generally a film, about 50% of a film's budget comes from the government and then they have to find the other 50%. And so there you've got more proportionate gay content, queer content, because governments, especially over the last sort of five to ten years, have been actually proactive and quite eager to fund queer content to make up for its lack in the previous sort of 80 years of cinema history. Uh, Let's just uh, pause on Brokeback Mountain because what, I mean, how important was it? Well, I think it's tremendously important because that was a Hollywood big, expensive movie with a Hollywood A-list director, Ang Lee, and it starred Heath Ledger and, what, Jake Gyllenhaal, right? And, I mean, it was two major Hollywood stars giving incredible performances. Heath Ledger's greatest performance. I mean, yes, he was incredible as the Joker too, but really, Brokeback Mountain was a phenomenal performance and it was was nominated for all these Oscars. As as I said before, I thought it was going to win Best Picture and it was just monumental and once again all sorts of people from all sorts of walks of life and all sorts of sexualities including straight people paid their money and went to the cinema and watched it and loved it and wept buckets at the famously famously (laughs) weep buckets ending so i think it was a a game changer yeah yeah what did everyone think after that now i can make a film like that too with those gay stories um no i think it made money and right. so I think it meant that people were more willing to invest money in queer stories. Yeah. You know, films are so expensive uh, that, it you know, you do even independent films that are made on blood, sweat and tear, you still need to convince investors to put money in the bucket, even if you're going to make a film for, you know, $1 million, which is cheap these days. So, you know, you've got to convince people that some people are going to see the film. And for that film to be so financially successful, you know, it certainly helped like larger films come around to, to, you know, mainstream films to get made with on queer themes. Mm. Uh, well, let's talk about the, the, what's been happening recently because you, you argue that really queer cinema, queer TV too is everywhere these days. Yeah, I mean, it, it, certainly not necessarily everywhere, but yeah, a lot. I mean, this is at the moment we've got, um, I think, a big, big, big... Um, 
surge in uh, queer cinema and it's being driven from all sorts of fronts. I think the main thing that's driving it is actually post-2017, so post-Me Too. I think the Me Too movement has rippled out from where it began, which was about we're no longer going to be silent about sexual assault and moved into a kind of cultural world where underrepresented groups are demanding to be represented and those groups that have not been letting them be represented because they control the pipeline of money have essentially said, you know what, you're actually right. We have not been funding your stories and we're going to start funding your stories. And so since 2017, and it's accelerated into the early 2020s, more and more stories from those communities that have been traditionally shut out of the money pipeline have been let into it. And in some cases, and I would suggest that perhaps uh, without knowing the figures, but on television, for example, for SBS and ABC commissioning, it's almost like that's what they're looking for at the moment is queer stories and and women's stories and the stories who, who didn't get the money in 1976. You know, they're getting it now. I was just thinking too, CJ, that there is also a lot of emphasis on often on the historical stories of, of historical figures, historical women or men who were gay, and those stories are being told. I was just thinking about Ammonite from 2020 with Kate Winslet. Yeah, Kate Winslet and yeah. uh, I think it's Shersha Ronan, you know, two major yes. movie stars. Yeah. Uh, yes, that's absolutely happening, and that's an interesting way in, isn't it? If you're a queer filmmaker and you want to tell and maybe you want to get a movie star to play your character, yeah. historical characters are definitely a way in. But, like, a film that I w- want to point to um, – that was a big success this year is a film called Bottoms. So Bottoms is, did you see Bottoms? I have not. You'd like it. It's really, really, really funny. So it's a crazy high school comedy and it's about two best friends, two girls who are both lesbians, but they are best friends. They're not lovers with each other and they are desperately, desperately horny and they just really want to have sex with all of the hot girls at school, including all the cheerleaders. So it's like the traditional high school comedy of like the the randy boys want to have sex with the cheerleaders, except they're randy girls. And from the very first scenes, they're super randy and all they're talking about together is how much they want to bed the hot girls and how much they can't. And so what they do is when they realise that a girl was nearly assaulted by a boy and she needed to defend herself, they're like, oh, we'll hold self-defence classes for all the girls and that way we'll get all these girls in the same room in the gym together and we'll see what happens. I can't believe they're letting you guys start a fight club. No, they're they're not. We are not. What are you talking about? We're going to do it. We're doing it. PJ, I wasn't being serious. Josie, did you see the way that Isabel and Brittany were looking at us? Ugh. Also, you heard the announcements. Girls are terrified. It's perfect. They need this. Okay, no. They need, like, mace, maybe. We can't do that, okay? We'd be misleading them. Guys do that all the time, okay? That's the point of feminism. That's not the point of feminism. You also don't care about feminism. Your favorite show is Entourage. You're missing the point. I don't really think I am. We don't know how to fight. Right, that sounds like a lot of fun. It is. So their, their self-defense class quickly pivots into a fight club, a fight club for girls. And through the fight club, everyone starts getting a little bit horny. And this was a big <laughs> hit. And it's so subversive, but it's also so earnest and so honest and so sincere. Made by a lesbian, starring um, one girl who is who is a lesbian. I think the other girl might be sort of bi. And it's full of uh, queer actors throughout. And it's just so much fun and so joyous. And among... 
younger people, younger than ourselves, but, you know, 20-somethings and younger, this film is a big deal. It's the kind of film that, you know, people are quoting to each other and seeing multiple times and it's it's a big deal. And, I, I mean, I think it goes without saying that it totally crosses... Um, the communities. I mean, straight young people are yeah. seeing this film and, and queer women and queer men and it's, you know, it's a fully queer film yeah. that's totally embraced. I mean, I know we're talking film, but there's a lot of TV at the moment that is, I think, doing the same thing. You look at a show like Sex Education or Deadlock. Uh, I don't know Deadlock. Oh, CJ. Oh, so funny. I, I've, I've stopped watching television so I can just watch more Tasmania movies. for a, a festival and there's a there's a murder going on. But it oh, is, is this the period one? No, no, it's, oh. a, it's modern. It is right. very very, very, it's, I think it's incredibly funny. Oh, good. Um, there's It's a Sin, which told the story of a group yeah, that of, was yeah, good. of yeah, yeah, that was young good. gay men in, in London in the, the 80s Dealing as the AIDS the virus AIDS, yeah. swept through. So I think that kind of TV is also much more common than it than it used to be as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's and it's, it's refreshing and, you know, there's all sorts of trans content now that's going on as well, which is, I mean, a lot, a lot. Mm. And um, it's good. It's really representational. I mean, we've got films like the film that won Best Picture last year at the Oscars, Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, is a queer film. Uh, the daughter in that film is queer, and then the mother, it turns out, hooks up with Jamie Lee Curtis and, you know, becomes queer herself. So that's a fully queer film made by two filmmakers who I think queer. I don't know. It's it's kind of hard to tell with them. Tar, which was its sort of, which was its challenger for Best Film last year, was a queer film about a, uh, a lesbian played by... Kate Blanchett. Um, and then Hollywood put out last year a big budget, absolute mainstream, posters on the side of buses, male on male rom com with sexual content called Bros. If you remember, that was sort of everywhere briefly. It, it, didn't, it didn't set the box office hugely on fire, but it certainly got the full on mainstream treatment. And then I don't know if this, because I was in Los Angeles at the time that this was being pushed by one of the streaming services. So it was a movie, but made for a streamer. I think it was made for Netflix. It was on every billboard in Los Angeles. Every billboard. I don't know if it got the same treatment here. It was called Red, White and Royal Blue. Did you see anything about I, this? No, but I have heard someone mention it. No, tell me. Yeah, tell Red, White and Royal Blue. And the whole thing, it was like, you know, this gay story about two men. Um, and one of them, I think, was a royal and one of them is like a diplomat or something and they're young and they're hot. And, <laughs> but, I mean, the, the and I haven't seen it clearly because I don't know what I'm talking about, but it was just so mainstreamly promoted mm. and I, I really felt like this is this is a major turning point the amount being spent on this thing they they clearly feel the kind of people who do the figures and spend the money because it's all based on whether or not they think they're going to get a return um feel that this is going to appeal outside that 10 percent yeah. you know yeah. way way outside it now here's a few more hannah and sydney says show me love was a swedish film about two girls who fall in love in high school it was filmed in 98 when same-sex relationships weren't accepted as much in the wider community. That's um, a good film. I've seen that film. Yeah. Amanda says, can't have this conversation without mentioning queer as folk, particularly the US version, which didn't shy away from physical love. Uh, and, of course, uh, it's a sin to be totally depressed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, exactly. Yeah, that was a really good film. It's a sin. Another really good, fun uh, queer film from just a couple of months ago that was in cinemas was Theatre Camp, which is all about kids who go off to theatre camp. And, of course, basically all the camp counsellors and all the kids are all queer because that's who goes to musical theatre camp. <laughs> and it was delightful. 
All right, all right. Let's. Uh, what else have we got to mention? We've got about five minutes left, CJ. Well, I mean, you know, look, looking at the films that are out right now, Anatomy of a Fall, which is this huge um, film at the in cinemas at the moment and is at the Oscars, one of the big sort of things that gets uh, brought into the intricate plot of that. It's a courtroom drama. Is the fact that the lead character, played by Sandra Hula, is bisexual? There's a very uh, powerful queer film in cinemas at the moment that's causing a lot of buzz called All of Us Strangers. The Power of the Dog, Jane Campion's film from just a couple of years ago that was a big deal. I think it won the Oscar for Best Film. She certainly won the Oscar for Best Director. Mm. Um, That was a a totally queer film with uh, Benedict Cumberbatch um, and Kobe Smith-McPhee in this sort of strange psychosexual dynamic. Uh, Someone's mentioning Runaway Dolls currently showing. No, it's called Drive Away Dolls. Oh, Drive Away Dolls. Yes, and I've seen it, and it's very, very good, and that is, it, it is a full-on, that film is all about lesbian desire. It's about two friends, both lesbians, who go on this road trip, and over the course of the road trip, friendship turns to something else. It's Okay, so this is interesting. It's directed by Ethan Cohen, um, who's one half of the Cohen brothers, mm-hmm. and he is, he is a straight man, and there's a lot of lesbian sex in it, so you're thinking, like, oh, is this a bit male-gazy? Turns out... Out, it's written by his wife, Trisha Cook, oh. and his wife, Trisha Cook, is a lesbian and they've got an untraditional marriage where they both have other partners and she, her other partner is a woman. Okay. So right. therefore so it look, might, makes yes, it kind of okay, doesn't it? It does. Yeah. Actually, another great Australian um, piece of work that we should mention is Holding the Man. Yeah, Holding the Man is exquisite. It is such a good film. Neil Armfield directed it. He directed it on stage. Um, and he finally directed the film, and the film is just fantastic. That'll that'll make you cry a little bit, but in a good way. <laughs> it's a beautiful, beautiful film. Now, Australia, as you can imagine, mm. um, kind of is a world leader in queer cinema. We've made a lot, and um, you know, because I think we're just we're just a very progressive, happy, um, inclusive country. I couldn't have said it better, CJ. Hey, I did my homework. I watched Double Indemnity. Did you love it? Oh, I loved it. Yeah, it's it incredible. Was, oh. Yeah, you would think like, where has this been all my life, right? Well, I was like, oh, old time cinema. Am I really going to get into this? <laughs> old time oh, cinema. Black and white. All this. I don't know. Yeah. But it was great. How good was Barbara Stanwyck? Barbara, okay, so what else is Barbara Stanwyck in? Because I should go and see something else. Here. Oh, my God. Okay, so see Babyface, see Night Nurse, see uh, The Lady E say uh, the lady of burlesque oh my god she's she's my favorite okay she's my favorite of all time i've got a bit of homework to do when i actually get around to it cj thank you so much for coming in and uh, being part of nightlife once again oh and barbara stanwick guess what she was head of the sewing circle which was a group of lesbians in hollywood so she's a queer icon too yeah Fantastic. CJ, we'll catch up with you next time. Thanks. Thanks so much for being here. There is CJ Johnson, who, of course, is our regular movie guru here on Nightlife. This is Nightlife with Suzanne Hill.